All right, so welcome to our final class of Bible 101, where you learn about the Bible. If you don't know about it, learn about it. Um, so first of all, I want to ask, is there any prayer requests tonight over anything? No. Okay, uh, at the conclusion of class, if you have offering, please remember to either give it online or whenever we are done. We have a bucket up here waiting for you. Um, don't forget about that because that's how we make things run around here. I want to thank you all for being a part of this, those that are here in the classroom, and those that are going to be listening to this later online. Uh, we all thank you very much for, for tuning in with us, for being with us, to learn God's Word, and to better ourselves. Um, if we could just take a moment and go to God in prayer that He would have His will and His way throughout this lesson, that we could come to knowledge of something, that we could have a revelation of something. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you, God, to learn your word, to learn what you have said, what you have spoken, to have a revelation of who you are and what your desires are for us and what the true meaning of life is, the reason that we are here. It's all found in your word, and we're thankful for that roadmap, that thing that's a lamp to our feet and a light into our pathway. We thank you for lighting that way showing us the way. Lord, I ask right now that you would just reach down and touch every single one of us, that your anointing would be in this place, that you would give me the words to speak, that you would give them the ears to listen. Let your word not just fall on deaf ears, but let it go into the minds and into the hearts of these people. Let them be hearers, but also let them be doers of your word. I ask that we could learn something that maybe we've never understood before. Give us understanding. Give us revelation tonight. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to be um, going back to last week's lesson because I didn't finish up and I really wanted to finish up. Um, So I handed out week five to you all once again. Uh, so if anyone's confused about that, that's what we're going to be going to. We're going to be on First Corinthians is where we're starting. I very highly doubt that we will um, have time to go into our next lesson and finish it. So anyone that wants, first of all, anyone that wants a copy of just all my notes for from Genesis all the way to Revelation, uh, just let me know and I will email them to you. It's literally 100 pages of notes like Exactly 100, actually 107 pages of notes. So it's not something I'm going to print out, but if you want them, I will email them to you um, or something like that. So we're going to go from 1 Corinthians, uh, I think, what is my last book in this lesson? It is, yeah, that one. Philippians, all the way to Philippians. And uh, whatever we get finished with Philippians, if we finish Uh, These books, I'm going to jump back to the Old Testament, uh, the last lesson of the Old Testament that we did not get through all the books in, um, just because I want to run through the books that we didn't get done with last time. Does anybody have any questions before we get started? All right, well, let's go to 1 Corinthians. So, Brother Paul, who was the writer of most of the New Testament, wrote 1 Corinthians. And it was a letter to the church at Corinth, hence the name Corinthians, the Corinthian people. It was written A.D. 56, and what Paul was writing about was grace under siege. That's going to be your letter B, grace under siege. 
So Paul's letters to the Corinthians deal with the challenges of Christians living in a hostile culture. The church at Corinth was far from the ideal model of a first century apostolic church. It was planted in one of the most difficult and challenging cities in the Roman world. To this uh, young church, with all its potential and all its problems, Paul wrote these intensely personal letters. So the church at Corinth was much like a church maybe being planted somewhere like New York in this day or um, San Francisco, San Diego, basically anywhere in California uh, or any, maybe even Austin, Texas, any city you could think of today that is everything that is against who Christ was. That was the church at Corinth. That was the city that they lived in, uh, the place that that church was planted. So that being said, First and Second Corinthians are very good books for us to read in today's society, as crazy as things are getting, in order to kind of see how we should live out our lives as the church in a place that is really predominantly anti-Christ. <clears throat> so <clears throat> first he spoke, excuse me, <clears throat> he spoke of reproofs and he was urging them to do something and this is chapters 1 verse 10 through 4 and 21 uh, this was following an introduction that he gave like many of the introductions Paul gave I'm actually going to turn to that introduction real quick because I love his introductions that he gives <clears throat> just a second Here we go. So I love how Paul introduces himself in many of the books. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and our brother, uh, Sosthenes, our brother, who was another man, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, he's very well known for opening his letters with letting them know that he is in the will of God. He says, my name is Paul. I'm called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it's the will of God for me to write these letters to you. And that's how he most of the time begins his letter in any of the uh, books that he writes. So let's go back to chapters 1 verse 10 through chapter 4 verses 21 where he is urging the people at Corinth. Paul began the body of his letter with an issue that was at the root of their problems. The need for unity around the gospel message. Their problem arose when various groups sided with different leaders who best represented their view of Christianity. They didn't go to the one that was necessarily right. They didn't go to the one that was necessarily proper and correct according to the Bible, but they went to the one that best represented what they thought Christianity should be. Uh, it kind of reminds me of so-called Christians in, in some places nowadays where they'll go to a church that doesn't preach against homosexuality because that's their view of the Bible, or they'll go to a church that doesn't preach holiness because that's their view of the Bible. And it, as long as the thing that appeases them is, is allowed at a church, that's where they'll go. But they don't want the full truth. They don't want the full truth. But this was what was going on at the church of Corinth, is they were going to <clears throat> every single preacher that did not preach against the things that appeased them, that's where they would go because basically they were lusting after the flesh. They weren't pursuing the spirit. 
So this resulted in divisions and quarrels. And in his reproof, Paul attempted to correct their worldly thinking by explaining how the wisdom of God differed from the wisdom of the world. It's always going to be a difference, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. So next, in chapter 5, verses 1 through chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul, uh, in his letter, gives them a correction. And he kind of, it's kind of funny. Basically, Paul tells them that their egos are inflated with pride, that they are full of pride. Paul next wrote to address moral problems in the church. First, he responded to a report that had come to him regarding immorality within the church. Instead of dealing with the problem, the Corinthians permitted it. They were proud of their tolerance of immorality in the church of Corinth. That sounds like many churches today, huh? <clears throat> However, Paul instructed them not to fellowship with a brother who willfully and openly sins. I feel like going off on this rabbit trail for a minute. So many times we, we see friends that like happened in the church of Corinth that willfully and openly sin. And a lot of times... We always let our emotions maybe get a hold of us, and we say, oh, well, you still got to love them. You still got to be friends with them. You still got to hang out with them. Well, you do still have to love them. You do still have to be their friend. But even Paul said that you don't need to go after those people. You don't need to be hanging around those people because very likely, especially people as young as many of you are, they'll probably pull you into their world rather than, rather than you pulling them back into yours. Um, so Paul instructed them not to fellowship. Don't have nothing to do with them, those that willfully and openly sin. Second, in the matter of litigation between believers, and third uh, problem area Paul addressed was sexual immorality and prostitutes. You wouldn't think you would have to address prostitution in the church, but here we go. He emphasized that the believer's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and it was bought with a price by Jesus. Our responsibility is to serve and glorify God with our body, not give it over to the fulfillment of its lust. Uh, next, he began to instruct them in chapter 7, verses 1 through chapter 14 and verse 40. <clears throat> and the third section of the letter, Paul answered the question posed to him, by the Corinthians, as indicated in the repeated introductory phrase, about uh, questions on marriage. He answered questions on divorce, on worship, on spiritual gifts, on the Lord's Supper, and love. And I urge you, if you have questions about any of these things, you have the scriptures right here. Chapter 7, verses 1 through chapters 14 to 40, address, uh, verse 40, addresses all of these subjects. Next, he began to teach them uh, chapter 15 and verse 1 through 16 and 12 uh, there was also controversy about the topic of the resurrection chapters 15 and 1 through 58 some of the readers believed in Christ's resurrection but not in the resurrection of believers uh, to refute that idea Paul repre presented the importance of Christ's resurrection and the understanding of the gospel message numerous resurrection appearances including one to Paul Testify that Jesus is indeed alive. Chapter 16, uh, verses 13 through verse 24, Paul begins to exhort. Uh, he gives greetings and a benediction. In the closing verses, Paul encouraged the readers to a 
theological and spiritual immorality governed by love. He identified other servants of God to whom they needed to be in subjection. A direct counter to the partisan approach he heard was present among them. So Paul, he sought out these uh, <coughs> these pastors or what this calls the servants of God. Um, whenever they were arguing about all these different people that they should follow. Well, this one, he, he doesn't really touch on posting bad pics on Instagram. So I'm going to go ahead and follow him. Well, this one over here, he... He don't, he don't really preach against watching stuff that I shouldn't watch, so I'm going to go follow him. Well, Paul sums it all up whenever he says, well, I'm going to give you the ones to follow. He says, these are the servants of God you should follow. These are the men of God that you should follow. Those that speak truth, those that preach righteousness, being right in God. That's what righteousness is. So many times we hear it prayed and spoken, I want to be righteous. Well, being righteous is simply defined as being right in God's terms, not in our own. So Paul deals with that in his final exhortations. In conclusion, in, his, uh, in this first letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote to a church with many problems and many questions. At the bottom of all their problems was a self-serving, indulgent attitude in contrast to the death of Christ as a self-giving sacrifice for the sins of others. Paul addressed their errors both in theology and in practice, leading them from personal gratification to selfless love of others in the context of service to God. Does anyone have any questions about 1 Corinthians? All right, moving on to 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> this again was Paul writing, and uh, again writing to the church at Corinth. And he wrote this in AD 56. And he is speaking on power and weakness. Can anybody tell me or quote me the scripture that best pertains to the power and weakness that this is talking about? Come on, somebody got to know it. Do you know it, Sister Jessica? He says, Moreover, I will rejoice in my infirmities. For what? When I am... There you go. Look at that. It kicked in. Alright, so, power and weakness. Second Corinthians is the most personal of all Paul's letters as he reveals his own heart for this church and his ministry in general. This is a realistic letter about the ministry and the minister. It tells of the highs and the lows, the joys and the struggles, the privileges and the sufferings. The frailty of a minister, however, is more than matched by the power of God. I love 2 Corinthians. So first he gives an introduction, speaking the same words, informing them of who he is of what he stands for and that it is the will of God that he should be speaking to these people. And that is uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> so then it was uh, in chapters 1, verses 12 through 7 and 16 that Paul begins to give a personal defense. Uh, he begins to explain his previous plans. The first change grew out of Paul's original plan to visit the Corinthians. He gave the details of that plan and assured the Corinthians that his intentions were sincere. 
The reason he did not come that way was so that he might not come to know them, uh, come to them in sorrow again. He wanted his next visit to be a joyful one. Uh, Paul's inside perspective on the gospel ministry, he discussed in chapter two through uh, uh, verse fourteen through chapter six, verses ten. After mentioning the coming of Titus in chapter two, verses twelve, Paul wrote a lengthy parenthetical digression about the ministry. Picking up the story of Titus again in chapter 7, verse 5. In this digression, Paul told what it was like to be the vessel that God uses. So, uh, Paul then begins to speak about his relationship with the Corinthians, the church at Corinth. Chapter 6, verse 11 through chapter 7 and 16. Returning to the story about Titus, Paul explained that he was... At one of those low points in the ministry when he came to Macedonia. In Macedonia, God lifted him up uh, by the coming of Titus and the news of the Corinthians' response, giving him joy and comfort. So sometimes God uses other people to lift you up whenever you're feeling down. Practical needs. Uh, he spoke of these in chapters 8, verses 1 through 9 and 15. Paul urged the readers to follow through on their earlier commitment to give. Being in Macedonia, Paul told the Corinthians that the Macedonians were giving the contribution as well. Uh, he made a powerful appeal in chapters one, uh, verse one, or chapters ten, verse one, sorry, through thirteen and ten. Finally, Paul responded to those who criticized his apostleship, turning to those who had attempted to discredit his ministry and apostleship. Paul emphasized this theme, the human vessel is so weak so that the powerful God might be seen. The power of God might be seen. In conclusion, uh, Paul exhorted his readers to respond maturely, giving the promise of God's love and peace. So Paul built three main sections around his theme of ministry and the minister. First, affliction is shared by those who minister so that they do not trust in themselves but in God. Anytime you feel afflicted, just know that it, it, it can be one of two things. Either it can be the devil just getting a hold of you, or it could be God <clears throat> wanting to make sure that you put your trust in Him and not in yourself. Second, not wanting the Corinthians to discredit their ministry, Paul urged them to follow through on their previous commitment to give an offering. And third, Paul displayed <coughs> his own weaknesses in order that the power of God may be seen through him. Paul's hope was that the Corinthians might learn from this letter, uh, reject the false apostles, and correct their error so that when he came, he would see them living out the faith that they professed. Any questions about 2 Corinthians? All right, moving on to Galatians. Also written by Paul once again. And this time he is speaking to the churches in the Roman uh, province of Galatia. It's the Galatians, the title Galatians. And here, does anybody know the famous uh, thing that's talked about in Galatians? Anybody? Yes, ma'am. Do what? It is talk does talk about fruit of the spirit, but there's one other thing, and like people quote it all the time. It almost fills an entire chapter in Galatians. It is the verses on faith. 
it was through faith that this one did this and this one did this. And I think that's chapter 14, but I might be wrong. So, that being said, your letter B is going to be grace through faith. All right, so grace through faith. Paul writes with holy indignation over the news that the Galatians were being influenced by Jews who would have Gentile believers circumcised and live by the law. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> because, the Jew, uh, because the Jews attacked Paul's credentials as an apostle, he defends himself with proof of divine apostolic authority. He answers with sound doctrinal explanations, uh, biblical illustrations, and some practical, practical exhortations for Christian living. So in the first section, Paul begins to talk about himself as a, a section um, about his personal life, about the things that he has personally experienced. And that is chapters 1, uh, verses 1. Through chapters 2, verse 21, Paul's greeting and theme, uh, and Paul's opening words, he refers to himself just like he always does as an apostle of Christ, and as such gives the basis for his authority to speak boldly for Christ. Uh, then he begins to talk about his apostolic authority. Those causing trouble in Galatia were no doubt questioning Paul's apostolic authority. So Paul addressed that issue. Paul's commission came directly from Christ on Damascus Road, not from some human appointment. From Damascus, Paul went into the desert territory of Arabia. There he realized when he, that when he persecuted a believer, he was persecuting Christ because all believers are part of Christ's spiritual body. So Paul's first visit to Jerusalem was spoken about in chapters 1 and 18 through verse 24. Next, Paul recounts his first visit to Jerusalem on the road to Damascus. Paul received his call from Christ to be an apostle. He did not receive it from any other apostles in Jerusalem, but straight from Jesus Christ himself. Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. If Paul was saved on the Damascus Road in AD 32, 14 years later would be about AD 46, sometimes called the famine visit. Paul says that he went to Jerusalem because of a revelation that he received. So Paul then rebukes Peter at Antioch. This is chapter 2, verse 11 through Verse 21, um, Paul next relates how Peter came to the Syrian Antioch church and was mingled and eating with Gentile believers until some Jerusalem Jewish believers came. Then Paul stayed aloof from the Gentile Christians and Barnabas was led astray to follow his example. But Paul says, <clears throat> Paul says this was hypocrisy and was deviating from the truth of the gospel. Next, there is a section on the doctrine where Paul rebukes the Galatians. He exclaimed, actually, you foolish Galatians. That's how he began chapter 3. 
Then he asked six telling questions <clears throat> to the Galatians, wondering why they were going uh, towards false doctrine. He says, who cast a spell on you? Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning with spirit, are you now going to be made complete in the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? So then does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing of the works of law? Or is it by believing what you heard? The answer to each of these rhetorical questions is that faith and faith alone has accomplished their salvation, not their works associated with the law of Moses. He then begins to speak about the law of Abraham's covenant, the law of Christian faith, the folly of returning to the law, and the allegory of Ishmael and Isaac. Next is a practical section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 and 18. Paul urges the Galatians to stand firm in Christ's liberty. To fail to do this would mean you have fallen from grace. Next, he talks about walking by the Spirit, chapter 5, 13 through 26. Paul next issues a number of brief positive commands. Those practical spiritual exhortations are to serve one another through love, to love your neighbor as yourself, and to walk by the Spirit. He ends with talking about how brothers should bear one another's burdens. Uh, Paul exhorts his readers to carry the same burdens, uh, to carry one another burdens, but at the same time exhorts each to carry his own load as well. It is our spiritual duty to restore a brother who has fallen into any wrongdoing while we also walk in the Spirit. In conclusion, Paul's letter to the Galatians is still a trustworthy, up-to-date antidote for a works-based attempt to gain heaven. Simple faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sin is the only way of salvation. Works of any kind cannot be added to gain salvation. Trust in such works is an indication that one's faith is wrongly placed. And I need to correct myself because the faith verses that I was speaking of was it's in Hebrews chapter 11. I don't know why I was in Galatians 14. Something else happened in Galatians 14, but I can't think of what it is. I don't know. I make mistakes too, guys. So we are moving on to Ephesians. Uh huh, that one. It just depends on how you want to pronounce it. I've got to figure out what I was thinking about in Galatians chapter 14. That's going to bother me. It's, it's Ephesians. Y'all don't worry about it. It's Ephesians. Look, you don't have to worry about it. All right, so Ephesians, also written by Paul, and it is another letter written by Paul. And this time, he is talking to the church at Ephesus, and this is written A.D. 61 through 62. And he is speaking to these people about winning the battle. That's going to be your letter B. Winning the battle. So Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a Ephesians, mm-hmm, I just said it, is a comprehensive presentation of the universal church or the body of Christ. Ten times in his letter, Paul reminds the Ephesians <clears throat> that believers are in Christ, 
Therefore, the believer has heavenly privileges, the riches of his grace. Because Jesus lives in heaven and we are in him. uh, Sorry, because Jesus lives in heaven and we are in him. The second section of Ephesians exhorts believers to live, to walk on this earth according to the riches they have in heaven. The final section tells believers how to fight against evil powers they face on this earth. So first he begins to speak about the plan of God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, the blessings in Christ. Paul opens his letter with an expression of blessing to God who has given believers many spiritual blessings in Christ. He then begins to speak about the body of Christ. Paul uses this figure of a temple to describe the church as a spiritual building in which all the different elements are welded together into a collective unity. I love these scriptures. Y'all need to go read them. Chapter 2, really the entire book of chapter 2. So notice that Paul says you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. The church is a society of people. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. While in times past, the church was uh, literally a place. The temple was literally a place. And we've all heard about what the temple was and everything inside it that represented. Some things represented worship. Some things represented repentance. Some things represented cleansing and sacrifice. And and all these different things in the Spirit of God. But what's crazy is is now the temple has moved out of a place and now it lives inside of you. So literally every single aspect of the temple, the, the repentance, the cleansing, the, uh, the thanksgiving, the sacrifice, everything that happened in the temple now has become one with you. So those things that, that they did, those, those, uh, those sacrifices they went through, the, everything that they did in the temple in order to get to the holy of holy places, you still have to do today. But you have to do it inside you. You don't have to go to a place and actually sacrifice things. You don't have to go to a place and and go to a golden laver. You don't have to go to a place like that and wait for God to to transfigure you through a curtain to get to his glory. But you do have to cleanse yourself. You do have to repent for all your wrongdoings. You do have to make sacrifices in your life. There's places you can't go. There's things you can't wear. There's things that you can't partake of. You have to make those sacrifices. But you do it in your life, in your body, not in a place. Because the temple now dwells within you. You are the temple of Christ. So uh, you are the body of Christ. So next, Paul begins to speak about the provision of God. Chapters 3 and 1 through 4 and 16. He talks about the mystery of grace. Paul pictures believers as being in Christ. This is a special relationship with God. Because they are perfect in Christ. The concept of being in Christ is a description of being placed into Christ at salvation. With an ongoing experience throughout one's Christian life. It's kind of cool to me that you hear of two different things. You are, whenever you're baptized, you're baptized into the body of Christ. But whenever you're filled with the Holy Ghost, Christ lives inside of you. So it's two different things. You want Christ to live inside of you, but you also want to be baptized into the body of Christ, which is the church of believers, which is Nevaeh and Ivy and Megan, which is all these friends that's around you. 
<clears throat> so he begins to uh, preach a message of unity in chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. Paul exhorted the people of Ephesus to be found making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Seven times in the next verses, Paul describes the unity as one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. Uh, he then begins to speak about the power of God in chapter 4, verses 17 through 6 and 24. Of all the cities where Paul ministered, perhaps the Ephesians had more evidence of satanic activity and demonic oppression than any other place. Therefore, Paul warns against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. <clears throat> he uh, begins to talk about a believer's warfare. Spiritual warfare takes place both in heaven and on earth. Because believers have victory in Christ in heaven, they should, it should and can have victory on this earth. So Paul exhorts believers to prepare for spiritual battle on this earth by putting on the whole armor of God. And that is where you'll find the whole armor of God. In conclusion, the letter to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry, <laughs> motivates the reader to triumph over the challenges of this life and to experience the abundant life Christ offers. The theme essentially highlights three truths. One, the believer's exalted position in Christ. Two, the believer's duty to walk according to the position of Christ. And three, that victory is possible because of the Word of God and the Holy Ghost. <coughs> Moving on to Philippians, <clears throat> which was another letter of Paul. So Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. He wrote it in AD 60. And Paul is speaking of the mind of Christ. That's going to be your letter B, the mind of Christ. Someone, someone jump up and shut that door, please. <clears throat> so in this brief and uh, intensely practical letter, Paul begins to speak to the vital necessity for all believers to live their Christian faith in a practical and relevant way in order to fulfill the plan of God for their lives and to fully glorify God. Thus, Paul conveys his passion for all believers to have the mind of Christ as they function with the body of Christ. So you want to have the mindset that God has as you function with the body, with your friends, with the other saints in the church. So first, Paul begins to speak about the joy of Christ. Paul expresses his deep, heartfelt thanks to God for the Philippians for every remembrance of them, suggesting he prays for them every single time he offers prayers. He was rejoicing, but he knew it would be, a, be difficult for some believers in Philippi to believe that God was still working mightily in his life while he was in prison. Um, <clears throat> while he was still in prison. So he wanted to encourage these people. As he, For anyone that doesn't know, he wrote the letter to the Philippians while he was in prison, while he was in captive. Um, so he wanted to encourage 
everyone he was writing to that even though he was in prison, God was still working in his life. God was still giving him things to speak and to preach. Uh, Thus, Paul's hope was to offer practical encouragement of his friends uh, at Philippi so they would not be tempted to doubt God's faithfulness even in dire circumstances. He then begins to speak about the humility of Christ. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 provides a profound example of how to live out the attitude of humility like Christ did. Paul says we should live in unity, humility, and selflessness. He then gives Jesus Christ as a supreme example for believers to follow. And it's something pretty amazing to me that y'all should all study out is literally everything that Jesus was and everything he represented He represented simply by going to the cross. While we do see his attributes and everything else that he did, the miracles he did, the the praying that he did, the time that he washed the servant's feet, all of that stuff, you can literally go to the story of simply the cross and the cross alone, and you can see every attribute of who Jesus was. You see his brokenness. You see his selflessness. You you see his humility. You You see all of these things simply by the cross and the cross alone. So next, Paul began to speak about the goal of Christ. What was Jesus' Christ's plan? What was his goal? Paul leaned on the righteousness of Christ as payment for his sin. He wanted to commune with the Lord uh, Jesus who provided salvation for him. Paul lived with the reality uh, that as a result of his salvation, he would someday see the Lord face to face. He then begins to speak about the peace of Christ in chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. True joy and peace are not contingent on circumstances, but rather on knowing that an all-powerful and an all-loving God is in control. When joy is fully experienced, the evidence of a level of trust and peace can only be produced by God himself. Paul's evidenced this level of peace and joy as he purposed in his heart to praise God even while he was in prison on his first trip to Philippi. Uh, In conclusion, in this brief letter, Paul provides practical answers to the frequently uh, pondered questions. How can I truly bring glory to God? Having the mind of Christ and the body of Christ is the way every believer can can bring glory to God. Paul emphasized that we can experience true joy When we let the mind of Christ control our remembrance, our prayers, our selflessness, confidence, unity, humility, evangelism, servitude, gratitude, commitment, and support. Does anyone have any questions about Philippians? Does anybody have any questions about any of the books that we just went over or have went over since we started? All right, so I'm going to go back to lesson four if I can find it. Here we go. Oh, no, sorry, lesson three. Finish lesson four in the Old Testament. One of these days. 107 pages, remember. So I'm going to go to Micah. I think that's where we may have left off. 
uh, whenever we were doing that lesson in the Old Testament. So Micah wrote Micah, and he is speaking to Judah. And he wrote this 740 to 689 B.C., and this was a divine lawsuit. So Micah was a prophet in Judah during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Therefore, he was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. He prophesied concerning both the northern and southern kingdoms at the height of the Assyrian crisis. Micah and Isaiah shared a common belief that the Lord would restore Zion as the center of his worldwide kingdom of peace and righteousness. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh, who is like God. After the Lord revealed his plan of judgment and then salvation for Israel, the prophet himself exclaimed, who is a God like you? So he began preaching this message of judgment. He wanted everyone to hear what he was speaking about. He portrayed the Lord marching out of his holy temple as a warrior and the earth crumbling and melting in his presence. The object of the Lord's anger was Israel and Judah, his own people. The Lord would first judge Samaria for his idolatry, for its idolatry, and then the same fate allow uh, awaited Jerusalem. Seeing the destiny that awaited his homeland, Micah composed a lament for the towns in Judah that would lie in the path of the evading Assyrian army. The Lord was angry that social justice had become common, uh, had become yeah common in Israel and in Judah. Through various legal and illegal means, the wealthy and the powerful conspired to steal the land of needy families. He then gives a message of hope to the people. He laid blame for the spiritual and moral corruption of Israel and Judah with their sinful leaders, with their greed and disregard for the poor. The rulers had become like cannibals who chopped the people up and made them into stew. That's disgusting, but the Bible says it. An extended promise of Israel's future salvation stands at the center of the book of Micah. This section includes Micah's famous prophecy of the future birth of the Messiah at Bethlehem. God promised to raise up another ruler over Israel who would come from Bethlehem, David's hometown. He then gives a message of pardon. In the final judgment section of the book, Micah called the people into the courtrooms uh, as the Lord brought a lawsuit against his people. The mountains and heavens were called as witnesses to hear the Lord's indictment against Israel because they witnessed the formal sealing of the covenant between the Lord and Israel in the days of Moses. After a brief lament, the concluding word of hope in Micah is a song of praise to the Lord uh, for his promised deliverance. The righteous would endure the time of God's discipline for Israel, knowing deliverance and vindication, excuse me, were on the other side of judgment. Israel would enjoy a second exodus when the Lord brought them home from their exile and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Micah announced that the Lord, uh, in conclusion, announced that the Lord's plan for Israel and Judah involved judgment and salvation. Israel and Judah were deserving of judgment because they worship idols and abandoned practical and social justice. Following judgment, the Lord would preserve a remnant and would restore Israel. The future Messiah would come from the line of David and would be born in Bethlehem and would reign over the kingdom, over a kingdom of peace and of righteousness. Let's end with prayer.
um, pray that God would go with us, that he would lead us and guide us. Uh, I want to encourage you all. One, one other thing I want to encourage you to do is everything you've learned, all these templates that you have, uh, these, these things that I've passed out to you guys, um, every one of them, I know many times in our walk with God, we can recall a story or we can recall a certain scripture. We can recall something about the Bible, but we don't necessarily know where it is. We don't know. Some of us don't know where the story of Jonah is. We don't know where the story is. Stories of David are. We don't know. I hope you know where the story of Job is because that one's kind of obvious. But we don't know where certain things are in the Bible. So I encourage you to, if you haven't lost them, to take these and use them as a template whenever you're studying the Bible because it truly will help you. Um, I didn't always give all the information, but in every subject line there is the chapter and verses where these certain things are discussed. Um, so I feel like I know it really helped me whenever I started going through the Bible like that. So without further ado, let's pray that God would have his hand on each and every one of us. God. We come to you once again tonight thanking you for everything that you are and what you stand for. We thank you for the anointing that you've placed on our life. We thank you for keeping us, for holding us, for uplifting us, for encouraging us. And we also thank you for correcting us, for rebuking us when we needed that, for the reproofs that you've given to us. We thank you that through your word, Everything can be learned about who you are. Every aspect of who you are is given to us in this book. We don't have to walk through life without being able to know where we're trying to go, without seeing the, having the end goal in mind. Like many people in the world do, they don't know why they are here. But God, because of your word, we know that we are here for a purpose. That we are called to be something greater than we are on our own, but through you, we are called to be great. We are called to win the lost. We are called to heal the sick. We are called to bring deliverance to those that are captive. Lord, I pray that you would walk with us, that you would lead us and guide us, that this word that we've learned would be hid in our heart, that we might not sin against you, that these things we've read would be put into our heart, that God, this thing that's filthy, that's that's, that's deceiving, that, that we don't know. The Bible says that we don't know our own heart, that only you are. That, But God, you, you sent us this word that's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So I ask that we would use this word to discern our heart. That our hearts could be made pure, that they could be made righteous and holy. I ask that you would lead us and guide us. That in everything we do, we would be careful to give you the praise because you deserve it. You are our creator. You are great. You are mighty. and You are holy. And God, I don't ever want to go a day in my life without giving thanks to who you are, to what you've done, and to all that you stand for. Why don't we just give him thanks one more time. God, we love you tonight. We thank you for everything you are. We praise you for being a great God, a holy God. Lord, you are great and you are mighty. You are holy. You're righteous. You are one. There is none beside you. There's none before you. There's none behind you. But you stand and you stand alone. You sit on your throne and you hold all power. The heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. No man can come against you. And because of that, because we have you living inside of us, no man can even come against us. Because we have victory in all things. When we fall, we're going to rise again. 
God, through you, nothing is impossible in our lives. And we thank you for that. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.